Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This week's episode of Broadway Breakdown is in response to a challenge set to listeners in episode 56. In exchange for a new iTunes review, co-host Matt Koplick promised to debut a scene from his series, Yours Truly, where the main character goes on a drunken filibuster at a party, defending the merits of Disney's The Little Mermaid. So thank you, Jay Pardon, for the new review. Appreciate you. The first season of Yours Truly focuses on Calvin. Hey! An aspiring writer. Calvin aims to write cultural think pieces that help shape the minds of tomorrow for publications like The New Yorker or Vulture. But instead, he's stuck writing three-sentence movie reviews for a pop culture site nobody reads. He's 27, gay, broke, and has been single the majority of his life. Thanks. Calvin's best friends are Brent. Hey, girl. An aspiring actor and Calvin's only other close gay friend. Brent is fun, sexually liberated, and always claiming he's going to lose 15 pounds, which he never does. Rude. And then Sophie. Hi. A heterosexual female and an eighth grade history teacher, despite the fact that children annoy her. Calvin and Sophie once shared an apartment. Until Sophie met her boyfriend Jared and the two now live... In bumblefuck nowhere. Bushwick, Brooklyn. Kindly bite me, Brent. This left Calvin with no roommate and no apartment. Being broke, he couldn't afford to start a new lease, so he was forced to move in with his mother, Audrey, in her apartment on the Upper East Side. Which is not a bad deal. Except it's a big turnoff to dates. Audrey and Calvin are now roommates. Audrey is also single, though unlike everyone else, is not a teacher or a struggling artist. Audrey is doing just fine, thanks. She will not, however, disclose her age. This is also the only time you'll hear from Audrey today. After spending his whole adult gay life being single, Calvin finally meets Sean. An English teacher at a private high school. Sean actually likes Calvin's deep passion for Disney films and how his weird brain overanalyzes each frame of them. Sean also tells Calvin off the bat that he wants to have an open relationship. They are officially dating, but Sean wants to be able to sleep with other people. Calvin says he's fine with it. He's not. On top of Calvin stressing over the confusing boundaries of his first relationship, he's also feeling resentment towards Sophie for spending less time with him and Brent, choosing instead to be with her boyfriend, Jared. Calvin, being a healthy adult, bottles up these feelings and tells them to no one. He also doesn't talk about the frustration and disappointment he feels about himself. He wants to be a writer, but he can't even tell if he's a good one because no one wants to hear what he has to say. And if they did, would they even like it? Every time he attempts to type something on his computer, the language seems forced and the thoughts cliched. 
as evidenced by the narration style of this recap, which is clearly influenced by part one of The Inheritance. Or any Wes Anderson film. Also, fuck you. Many other things happen in season one, but these are the important details for today. In our season finale, Calvin, Brent, and Sophie go to a loft party thrown by their former classmate, Callie Mason. Hey, friendos! Callie went to Northwestern with our trio. I still remember the paper Calvin helped me write junior year. He managed to connect Tina Turner with Mulan and Gloria Steinem. It was about female reinvention. Callie works for New York Magazine. Calvin brings Sean to her party, and the two are not doing well. I'm gonna go get some air. Don't you want to meet Callie? She's the host. She'll be here when I get back. Bye. Everything okay with you two? Over the course of the night, Calvin and Sophie proceed to drink. A ton of whiskey. The loft is packed with people. Honestly, if you throw a party and offer an open bar for five bucks, anyone you've ever spat on will show up. Soon after, a drunken Sophie and a tipsy Calvin fight about the strain on their friendship ever since Sophie moved out to live with Jared. It's dramatic. Fuck off! I had a life before I had a boyfriend, and I have one now. I don't obsess on my relationships like you do. Said the girl who cancels on her friends anytime her man calls. I reach out to you all the time. So do I. Bish, I text, I call, I schedule for us to hang out. Then bail. One time. Four. Four times in the last three weeks. Ugh, Jesus, you are my pettiest friend. I am not petty. Please, you still refer to Angelina Jolie as the other woman. She broke up a marriage. Who hasn't? Calvin storms back to the living room. Don't you walk away from me, Calvin Burl. In the living room are a few of Callie's new co-workers at New York Magazine. D. Movie critic. A decent one at that. Kelly writes retrospective think pieces on cinema classics. Telling you why your favorite films are problematic. Neil covers award season predictions. And is frequently wrong. And then Anne. Anne covers nightlife. When Calvin and Sophie last saw this foursome, they were in the middle of a critical debate on Oscar season. As the two return to the living room, the conversation has steered towards Disney. See, that's what I'm saying. I'm all for Disney remaking their stuff, so long as they make sure to fix the inherent problems in their works. Like making Hercules more historically accurate. Oh, Jesus. Or making The Little Mermaid less sexist. <sighs> the Little Mermaid isn't sexist. Um, of course it is. It's the same misogynistic Disney bullshit. How? How is Disney misogynistic? No, I get that. Disney has done female characters dirty for decades, but The Little Mermaid isn't one of those movies. Oh my god, of course it is. The main theme is that a woman has to change for a man. That's not the theme of the movie! Ariel becomes human for a prince. The whole film is an allegory for the same patriarchal fantasy that Disney and every studio in Hollywood has been pushing since the dawn of cinema. No, it's not. How is it not? Calvin, please, not now. Because the movie's an allegory for the LGBTQ community. Excuse me? How did you pull that out of your ass? Kelly, babe, don't. The Little Mermaid is a movie. Based on a fairy tale written by a reclusive homosexual. That's still a story representing the sacrifices that women have had to make for men for centuries, with no consequences for the men whatsoever. And the worst part is... Everyone in the film is okay with it in the end. Exactly. Patriarchal bullshit. Okay, Kelly, if you want to do this, let's do this. Calvin grabs Kelly's glass and downs whatever is in it in one gulp. He slams it on the table. <laughs> Sophie turns to Kelly. Hope you're happy you've just released the Kraken. First of all, let's get one thing cleared up right now before I go into anything else. Ariel doesn't change for Eric, because that would imply that Eric wanted her to change at all. He doesn't. He never did. 
If he did, then he'd be the reason for her changing into a human. But he isn't the reason, he's the catalyst. Ariel changes for herself because being human is what she's always wanted. Part of your world establishes that. Right, your world, his world. But she sings part of that world. That's the lyric. She doesn't sing your world until after the shipwreck because it isn't until then that she even sees Eric. Before all that, during part of your world, Ariel only knows the human world as a mythical, unreachable place. But she still connects to it. Before she ever even meets a man, she connects to it and wants to be a part of it. Except that when she does meet a man, her whole thinking then shifts and revolves around him. And again, how is this now an LGBTQ movie? Oh god. Okay, let's break this down. Calvin grabs a bottle of wine, sips from it, and pulls up a chair. We all understand that Ariel is physically speaking a mermaid, right? Right, Neil? I'm involved now. But that's not who she is. Not really. So, like, let's look at the formula of the whole Disney Renaissance film. How long is he going to go on for? Told ya. Each film starts by setting up a society. You have the people who live there, obviously, but most importantly, you have the cultural norms. What people are used to. And then you meet the protagonist. They do not fit into the social norm for some reason. Belle, Hercules. Aladdin, Pocahontas. You name it, our protagonist is always somehow the other. The outsider. Their whole plotline becomes how they make society see the value in their existence. Or they make everyone see the flaws in their society's belief in standard living. Enter Ariel, who is the other in her community. She is a human in the body of a mermaid. Now, she may not be able to express it as such with her 80s Disney vocab, but she is. And she's trapped by the conventions of her society and the narrow minds of those in it to ever think that her dream of becoming a human could be a reality. How is that not a queer narrative? When is that ever said? Outwardly? Like when does Flounder, who by the way, total bottom, when does Flounder turn to the camera and say, Hey kids, this movie is gay as fuck? Never. But then it's not like you pronounce the B in subtle now, do you? <laughs> what? That was solid. Neil, I... <sighs> Listen, Kelly, Disney is famous for its I Want songs, right? I guess. It's, it, it, it is. Just, it is. Out there, I just can't wait to be king, and on and on and on, they're all there. At least starting with the Renaissance. But let's look at part of your world for a second and see why it's different from all those other I Want songs, okay? Most of those other Disney movies have I Want songs that end on a hopeful note. Like, uh, I will go the distance. No one knows how far I'll go. You know, it's... It's determined. It's confident. But that's all heterosexual expectation. Part of your world doesn't end that way because it can't afford to. It ends unresolved, unsure, and dispirited. Calvin. Because for the queer community, realizing your dream is not something you can just expect for yourself. I mean, you can hope. Many do, but it's not a given. Nothing's a given. Yes, you can't control the future, but this is different. Our current world is one where so many people don't want the queer community to have a future at all unless we fall in line and act how they think everyone in society should act. Reserved, complacent, hetero. Even though we've come really far, and like we have, it's not a finished fight. It's exhausting and it's depressing. And yes, there's still hope, but at times it feels like it's just a flicker. Part of your world represents all of that. Listen, buddy, I- Listen, buddy, to you, Anne. 
That song reaches its pinnacle musical moment, with Ariel reaching through that small hole in the ceiling of her grotto, cutting off her path to the surface and ultimately providing her with no answer to her question, when's it my turn? What do you think all that means? The glass ceiling? Underwater? Thanks, Sophie. Neil ever so subtly takes out his iPhone and begins to record a video of Calvin talking. Calvin is too tipsy and too focused to notice. It represents hopelessness. By the end of that song, Ariel has established her want, but she has also established that she doesn't think she'll ever get it. To be human. More importantly, Dee, to be happy. Don't you get it? Ariel won't be happy and- Until she meets a man. Jesus, no! It's like a one-track mind with you. Until she's human. And yes, seeing Eric changes things because he is the first human she has ever seen live and in the flesh. Not just because he's hot, and he is, like objectively he is, but because the human world has finally become tangible. It's real. This motivates Ariel to stop dreaming and start doing. By giving away her voice to make a man love her. Oh my god, yes. She signs her voice away. The same voice, by the way, that attracted Eric to her in the first place. When he gets saved from that shipwreck, he doesn't say, some girl saves me and she had the thickest red hair and a tight bikini body. He talks about her voice. And when Ariel does eventually meet Eric, and when he finds out that she can't speak, he isn't psyched because he found some hot, mute girl. He's disappointed because he thinks she can't be the girl for him. So, when he falls in love with Ariel anyway, despite the fact she doesn't measure up to what he originally thinks he's looking for in a person, that is a message to our shallow culture of insta-couples with their Pinterest boards filled with mason jar cocktails for their outdoor wedding, which they had a flash mob proposal for. Ooh, did you see the one last week where that guy brought his girlfriend to the park? and then Neil, he- shut it. That whole storyline is telling us that we can look past what our modern culture has deemed as flaws or handicaps and connect to the person inside. But then why give it away at all? Hmm? You say it's her voice that is her most distinctive trait. It's everyone's most distinctive trait. Right. So then why does she give that up? Because she and the movie don't think a woman's voice is important. That's why. You can't justify that. Giving up your ability to be heard all for the possibility that you might get a man? I call bullshit. I do too. Listen, do you? Calvin stumbles out of his chair, almost falling. Calvin? I'm fine. I'm fine. You remember what happened a few short minutes before Ariel made the impulsive decision to exchange her voice for legs, right? Ariel's father, King Triton. With the beefy arms? And xenophobic worldviews. Him. Because of his own narrow-mindedness, King Triton destroys all of Ariel's possessions in her grotto, her only connection to the human world. So when she goes to Ursula, it's because she was distraught and vulnerable. And like, yes, she signs away her voice, and yes, that's a mistake, but like, Look at the goddamn animation of that scene, okay? Bitch can't even watch herself sign her own name when she agrees to that damn contract. She knows it's a bad move, the movie knows it, but to her, there is no other way to get what she wanted, because she was desperate to get out, and people do stupid things when they're desperate. Are you watching this every night on Disney Plus or something? Bitch, he's got the DVD on his nightstand. No! Ariel's stupid impulse is just a little higher in stakes than the ones most people make because hers takes place in a movie. And, and I can't stress this enough, a fucking fairy tale. But those same principles apply. 
When you can't see a way out, you'll take whatever's given to you, even if you know it's not the right choice. That's life, and that's the stuff of movie drama. Anybody want a beer? Neil, get it together! Ursula eventually using Ariel's voice to lure Eric away, only for Ariel to regain it and have him come back to her? That's all the metaphor that vocal, powerful women get what they want, while women who choose to be voiceless and submissive get cast aside. And... Ursula's takedown at the end is a warning to all women. Not that a male-dominated society has no use for women who come to power. Though that's true. But that if you're a woman, no, sorry, if you are anyone who intends to come to power, be prepared to share the wealth because it's your own corruption that will bring you down. In an ideal world. Which most Disney films take place in. But this is all just stuff that a remake can elaborate on. Right. Remakes can take everything you're saying and expand upon it. Like in the remake of Beauty and the Beast when they went Neil, to the- if you speak again, and especially if you mention that flaming hot garbage fire of a movie, I will punch you in the fucking throat. Nope. Bullshit. This whole thing is a reach. The feminist angle you're trying to spin to us is forced, and the queer component is extra forced. Have you literally not been listening to a word I've said, Kelly? Well, you are slurring your words there, babe. Sophie, I- You're not helping! The final scene in The Little Mermaid. What is it? The wedding? Before that, what makes the wedding happen? Ariel gets legs again. Her father gives her legs. Bingo. And a cute dress. The dress isn't important. Maybe not to you. I mean, yeah, sure, it's cute, but it's one color and some glitter and a sheath silhouette. You know, it's fine. Sheath silhouette? Jesus, Neil. Turn on Drag Race or Project Runway for like a second and you'll get it, okay? Seriously, Neil. The fuck did I do? Kelly, the final scene isn't about Eric. It's not even about Ariel. Then- It's about King Triton. That scene is the message of the whole movie. He's a parent finally understanding that his child's road to happiness doesn't mirror his own. Triton, and by extension, the whole underwater kingdom, finally understands that Ariel will only truly be happy as a human because that is what she has been all along. And understanding that finally brings peace between Triton and Ariel. And it takes the whole movie, the terrible mistake Ariel makes in signing away her voice, and the consequences of those actions for him to realize this. It takes realizing that forcing your child to go against their natural impulses just so they can fit what you consider to be an acceptable life will lead to them running away from you, or worse, harming themselves or others. Wow. Imagine how powerful that movie can be to a child who is struggling, or to their parents who are struggling to understand them. Think of the trauma and confusion we can avoid by showing kids The Little Mermaid and explaining to them that feeling different is also felt in others. They're not alone because they have our support. And you're saying all this as a cisgender white male. I'm saying this as a gay man who, at the age of three, was caught recreating the whole Ariel popping out of the ocean hair flip in his bathtub one too many times. Iconic. And so was then sent to four different child psychologists because his parents thought he might have gender identity issues. Audrey and your dad did that? Not to mention, being a young boy who never saw any role models or a reflection of himself in any of the traditional male characters in the family-friendly movies he loved, and so found solace in Ariel and her journey to find love and happiness, because she too was an outsider who didn't fit her society's standards of acceptable, and who was headstrong and determined, but also felt powerless. Because though you can only do so much for yourself, you still need the support of others to help you. You need the care of your family, and I don't care what anyone tells me, you do need the love of another person in your life. You can be a strong person who stands on their own and still want to find love. It is not weak to want to be with someone. Now, if you excuse me, I need to vomit.
It should be noted that he doesn't. But let's just say, a lot of shit goes down after this. Thank you for listening to Masterpiece Radio Theater. I'm Laura Linney. Now back to your regular programming. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.